1-800-636-957, Melvin Jefferson versus the City of Tarrant, Alabama. Mr. Pentazis. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Supreme Court of Alabama has held there is no Section 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 claim for cause of action if the victim dies from the perpetration of the act. The issue before this Court is when the decedent's death results from the deprivation of a federal right occurring in Alabama, does the Wrongful Death Act govern the recovery of the decedent's estate? Are you going to address the jurisdictional issue? I will, if, Your Honor. I think you should. The federal issue has been totally adjudicated by the Supreme Court of Alabama. And under the Cox case, this Court has, has held an exception or held that jurisdiction is found where there is no further federal issue to be adjudicated and cannot be adjudicated at, at the lower court. But the federal issue could become academic if you go back and on the state claim there's a determination that there was no wrongful conduct on the part of the city. Under, in Cox, it's my understanding, Your Honor, is that the Court held this exception. Where the federal claim has been finally decided and with further proceeding on the merits in the state court to come, but that which later review of the federal issue cannot be had, whatever the ultimate outcome of the case. That was the third exception. But here you could conceivably, uh, if you should prevail on the state claim, you could then bring up that you should also have had a 1983 claim. I don't believe so. I think the Supreme Court of Alabama has already adjudicated that in this particular case. And they would then say it's law of the case, and so we deny, uh, in dealing with the appeal, you would have a final disposition, and you could come here again. In that respect, it's different from Cox against Cone. I think it is different, but I think the rationale of Cox is looking at this particular issue. This court, the Alabama Supreme Court has adjudicated it to the fullest degree under the federal issue. The issue isn't whether they have adjudicated it finally and will not come back to it. You're quite right that they wouldn't come back to it. The issue is whether we could pick it up later on. After they simply say it's, it's law of the case, there is no federal cause of action, at that point you have a final judgment, the whole thing has been dismissed, and you could come here. Is there some reason why you couldn't come here? It would require dupli duplication in, in trying the case twice, and I think that's part of the rationale that Cox looks sure. at. Sure. Uh, well, I, that may well be, but we're bound by the federal statute, which, which says that the case has to be finally decided by the highest court of the state. Finally decided. Well, the, the highest court of the state is going to have this case back again, or may well have the case back again uh, on, the, on the state law claims, no? It could. But the problem, Your Honor, is that the third element in Cox specifically, I think, addressed that rationale. It said that the federal claim was adjudicated in the, federal, in the state court. But it says where, where further federal, where it's, it's, it says, but in which later review of the federal issue cannot be had. And under the law of the case, Alabama conceivably could change its mind if there were some intervening uh, decision, perhaps by the 11th Circuit. Uh, probably it won't. Uh, but nevertheless, you can't say in which later review of the federal issue cannot be had. That, that's just not, that's, you just haven't complied with that exception. Now, maybe you might ask us to have some further exception and say, well, it's duplicative or something like that, but I don't think you come within exception three. 
Well, I think, though, the rationale in Exception 3, if it does not meet this case, it should meet this case, and maybe the Court should accept that as uh, a further. I, I think perhaps the rationale of Section 3 was your, your a case called California versus Stewart that was decided on, where the, the state court says this evidence is inadmissible because it was violative of Miranda. The state wants, wants to appeal that. If it goes back to the trial court, the state is prevented from getting that evidence in, so it's lost forever the right to review that claim because the trial court won't accept it. And if there's a, a guilty verdict or a not guilty verdict, the, the state never will have an opportunity to review it. You, on the other hand, will, as my colleagues have pointed out, have, could have an opportunity to have this reviewed in the later proceeding. Well, I think that, Your, Your Honor, Mr. Chief Justice, I do not believe that we will because I think the Supreme Court of Alabama has, has reviewed the issue and has accepted it. No, I, let, let's, let's assume that, as I think my colleagues have assumed, that the Supreme Court of Alabama is going to say, as Justice Ginsburg, this is the law of the case, we've decided it. But this is simply a necessary step for you to then bring the case to us, and you will not have the final judgment argument made against you at that time. If that rationale holds, then this case would be tried once with the state remedy, which would exclude the entire 1983 cause of action. It would then go up before the Supreme Court of Alabama, and they, as uh, Justice uh, Scalia points out, would probably say, we've already covered this, you know, the issue is moot. And we'd be here again two or three years on the same issue, having gone through the system uh, without any moving the case any further. could have a happy ending. You could lose on the state on the state claim, and <laughs> then the whole thing would be washed out, right? That's true. Well, the problem is that that's always true when you take an interlocutory appeal. That's correct. That's always true. So the statutes balance and allow you sometimes to take the interlocutory appeal, sometimes not. But we have a statute here that doesn't allow it. It says final. And is there any way around that? I mean, I, I don't see what the word is final. It, it doesn't allow this interlocutory thing to come up. Well, so how do we get around that? I personally do not believe the Supreme Court of Alabama will adjudicate the same federal issue again. And the reason is the defendants in this case are going to say this case was already decided. That was already addressed. The parties were before it. It was a final order on the, on the 1983 issue. That's over with. And I, and, and I don't, we don't resolve finality issue by issue. I mean, uh, our cases make it clear that if, if, if any of the claims in the, uh, in the case are still alive, the, uh, the judgment is not final. And there are claims still alive here, the state claims. The state claims. So the only way you can get out of, of the problem is to say this comes within one of the exceptions to wit there is no other way to appeal this federal, uh, this federal claim unless I can appeal it now, which was the situation in the case that the Chief Justice described. But I don't see why that's the situation here. It seems to me you can come back up here. I know it takes two more years and, it, and, and we're, we're duplicating effort and all of that, but, but that's what this statute uh, envisions. I mean, um, I believe the court could expand, if that's the term, in the Cox rationale and to allow this particular appeal. How, how, how could we, I mean, it's like a trial judge. The trial judge makes a ruling against you at the beginning of the case. Yes. You run up to the Court of Appeals. You say, you know, Judge, an awful lot of time and effort is going to go by. Why don't you in the Court of Appeals reverse him now? 
And if we have a statute that says final, we can't do it. We have to look to some other statute that gave us the interlocutory right or that gave us, uh, you know, the certificating right. Uh, we couldn't do it on a word that says final. Right. And, and that's the dilemma, it seems to me, here. I'm putting that because maybe you can think of something, but I don't well, know what it is. The, dif- the difference in that is that if it is an issue, an evidentiary issue or something, it's, it would be adjudicated and revisited at the end of the trial as all evidentiary issues. The issue of whether you have a cause of action has reached the highest level it can reach in Alabama, and it has been adjudicated at the highest level it can reach within the Alabama system. And that issue has been taken care of both from a fact standpoint and from a representation of the parties. And I don't believe the Supreme Court of Alabama can go back and review it. It's already said. I've made that decision on that issue. I think that we would be... Suppose there were some intervening decisions. Couldn't you tell the Alabama Supreme Court, uh, you made a mistake here. Uh, there are some intervening decisions from, from this court or from the uh, Court of Appeals of the 11th Circuit, which there might well be. Uh, please take another look at this. They, they have the discretion to do that. Rule, law, law of the case is discretionary, in, I take it, in Alabama. They possibly could do that, Your Honor, but in, because the Supreme Court of Alabama has, has ruled on a motion to dismiss pleadings, this was not a summary judgment, it was a motion to dismiss pleadings, it dismissed the counts in this case that involved 1983, and they're forever gone. And the Supreme Court of Alabama has ruled that issue finality. Those issues are no longer present in the state court and in trial court. If you were to prevail on the state claim and then uh, ultimately prevail here on your 1983 case, you wouldn't have to have a whole new um, trial. Couldn't you get some mileage? from the state, the trial on the state claim in which you succeeded so that you wouldn't have to duplicate all that evidence? Um, I would think not. And the reason is because the state measure of damages in Alabama for wrongful death is the wrongfulness of the conduct of the defendant. It is not compensatory. It's purely, purely punitive. And if you, in 1983, against municipalities is compensatory damages only. There is no compensatory damages for wrongful death. With respect death. to liability and fault, well, the issues that would be tried in the case in Al- uh, in the, for the wrongful death, the issues and the, the evidence and even the, the measure of damages, what the jury is allowed to consider, would totally be different. The measure of damages would certainly be different, but I don't understand why the... The conduct? The fault issues would necessarily be different. It may not, Your Honor. It may, a lot of it would parallel, but a lot of it, there, there is also issues that would be allowable in 83 from an evidentiary standpoint that wouldn't be allowable or relevant just for a wrongful death case. Mr. Pentasis, just for fun, why don't you tell us about the merits of the case? Okay. It is fun. <laughs> Your Honor, this case involves a lady who was an elderly black lady in Tarrant, Alabama. She died in a fire. She had both legs amputated previously. She died when her husband, when the house caught on fire, her husband tried to pull her to a first floor window, could not get her out. The firefighters of Tarrant City uh, arrived on two requests. He asked them to pull her out on both requests, two different firefighters. They both refused. His son and her son approached and got there. When he did, he pulled her out. She was laying on the ground. They refused to administer any first aid. They refused to even take her pulse. 
The allegations in the complaint, and as the record reflects, this was a custom and practice of depriving black citizens in Tarrant, Alabama, of fundamental equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment. And we had filed a Section 1983 cause of action. And as this Court knows, Section 1983 does not provide remedy, uh, remedial damage remedy, under that section. We have to look for guidance to 1988. 1988 tells us that we look first or consider first the state common law and state statutory law. And if that is not inconsistent with the purpose and policy of the federal Constitution and United States laws it's intended to protect, then we apply. But if it is, that is the balancing test or that is the test that the courts must look at. This court in in Robertson versus Wagman has held that the purpose and fundamental policy of 1983 is to compensate and to prevent prevention of abuses of power by those acting under color of state law, or in my words, deterrence. And if you apply that standard to what we have in Alabama, or we're left with in Alabama, because what's left are two state statutes. One of them is the wrongful death statute, which is cited at 65410, and as I've indicated, is purely compensatory. Even the Supreme Court's decision in this case states that in either the first or second paragraph. Excuse me, it's purely punitive. I said compensatory. I misstated. It's purely punitive. And the jury charge is they're admonished never to consider any compensatory aspects, just punitive. Certainly frustrates the purpose of compensation. You say it frustrates the purpose. A moment ago you said the purpose is deterrence, and it certainly doesn't frustrate the purpose of deterrence. It's a classic example of a deterrent remedy. That's correct. It does satisfy the second element of deterrence, but it frustrates the first element or underlying policy of compensation. There is a second statute that comes into play. Well, it doesn't satisfy it. I don't know that it frustrates it. Well, it 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 runs in conflict with it, Your Honor. There is a second statute that frustrates both and is inconsistent with both policies, and that is Section 1193.2, which arbitrarily places a limit of $100,000 on any recovery against a municipality, which would apply in this case with no 1983 cause of action. But we we don't get to that, do we? We do. Well, we don't get to it because of the federal rule, right? Well, if we have no 83 claim, as the Supreme Court of Alabama has said, it's all state. Supreme Court did not modify its wrongful death. No, but your your argument, as I understand it, is that even to the extent of the deterrence, uh, there is a frustration of purpose here because the punitive damages cannot be recovered against the municipality. Isn't that your argument? That is that is an argument. We take the position, Your Honor, that that because it's purely punitive that it doesn't comply with the compensatory aspects while it may comply with the deterrence. The court, the Supreme Court of Alabama has said that in removing the 1983 action, and that's what it did, it dismissed it, said that we are now under the wrongful death. While we're under that statute, we're also under the statute that arbitrarily limits us to $100,000 damages. And that frustrates both deterrence as well as yeah, but you never, you never yeah. get to that limit because of the effect of the federal law, do you? Well, because whether there is a limit or whether there isn't a limit, you can't get any punitive damages against the municipality well, under the, 1983, and that's a matter of federal law, right? I, I disagree. 
And the reason I disagree is the Supreme Court said there's no 83 claim, so we're not under any federal law for this case as it sits now well, at the trial level. You don't claim an independent federal basis for challenging the $100,000 limit on punitive damages for wrongful death in Alabama if it didn't involve a federal claim. Exactly, Your Honor. When you say exactly, do you mean yes or no? Yes. I do not challenge it. I agree with your statement. I do not challenge it because what we're saying is if we have a 1983 claim, then the the limitation would not apply. And that's why it's so important that this Court consider and instruct the Supreme Court of Alabama that our 1983 claim is not satisfied by the Alabama wrongful death statute, because if it does apply, if we have an 83 claim, the arbitrary caps do not apply. If we don't have an 83 claim, if the case is as it's left right now without any reference to 1983, then all of the State laws would apply and we would have purely a punitive remedy and a $100,000. Could I ask what you're seeking under the 1983 claim? Is it damages for Mrs. Jefferson's death and pain and suffering, not the loss of association or consortium by the remaining family members? Your Honor, we're asking for the wrongful death statute to compensate the estate. Well, under the 1983 action, as I read the complaint, it seemed to be asking for damages for Mrs. Jefferson's death and pain and suffering, as opposed to anything suffered by the children or the spouse. We are asking for the damages as listed in the Weeks case, which is a district court case in Alabama, which did say that the estate's damages are the measure of the pain and suffering, the funeral expenses of the decedent's heirs or the descendants. And that is what we think the typical compensatory damages that is encompassed in 49 States. I'm sorry. You say you are not asking, then, for her pain and suffering? No. Even though that's what how the complaint reads? If the complaint reads that way, that may be an inartful pleading. But we're asking that the Court compensate the estate. And in compensating the estate, the Court look at traditional compensation measures for wrongful death, which, like we've indicated, 48 or 49 States, the only one I'm unsure of is Massachusetts, have held that when you compensate for death, the beneficiaries or the descendants are the ones whose damage or the ones who suffer the loss and suffer the pain and also pay the medical bills and pay the funeral expenses. Mr. Pantasis, there's a distinction, I'm sure you are aware, between survival statutes and wrongful death acts. And one is thought as compensating the bereaved family members, and the other is thought as going to the estate, as the claims that the decedent would have if she had survived her pain and suffering, and that goes to the estate. But you seem, in your answer to Justice O'Connor, to blend those two. And I was wondering why you cast your complaint in survival act terms, and yet in your response just now about the family members, you seem to be shifting over to the wrongful death mode. I believe, Your Honor, that the damages 
go to the decedent estate. That's the only — the wrongful death damages or the 1983 damages would go to the estate and would be passed directly. You're wrong. The, the decedent's damages go to her estate. The wrongful death action is brought on behalf of the relatives and third parties. You're just asking for the latter. Your complaint seems to cover both. Well, and we are. Why would you limit yourself to one rather than both? Well, we are asking for both, but the, the, the way you compensate a decedent for death in reality, and what most of the states have done, is by compensating the, for the heirs for what they have lost, or the descendants for what they have lost. Not in the normal survival action. The money goes into the estate. And of course, whoever is the beneficiary of the estate gets the money, but that's analytically quite distinct from a death action brought on behalf of survivors. I don't know. I, if you want to limit yourself to one, that's your privilege, of course. Well, um, the money in the estate may, may never get to the to the uh, to the family. I mean, uh, the the decedent the may owe a lot of money, and all the money in the state would go to his creditors. Under the Alabama wrongful death statute, it goes directly to the descendants and not not attacked by. That's death. the wrongful death recovery, but That's not correct. survival recovery. The survival recovery, the recovery that the decedent gets for the decedent's own uh, pain and suffering, goes into the decedent's estate, and the creditors can gobble it all up. The only da if you're speaking of a federal remedy, that would be correct. But the only remedy we have in Alabama is the wrongful death, which would not allow that it, under Alabama common law and statutory law. You say that under Alabama law for wrongful death, the proceeds have to go to the estate? No. The proceeds are the estate bring is the proper party to bring the cause of action, a personal representative through the estate. But the damages go directly to the descendants. And in weeks, the court analyzed that the compensatory aspect of 1983 is to compensate the decedent by the measure of damages that the uh, descendants had suffered and pay them through that proceeds, through that process. strange system. I mean, I, I guess it's the civil law, but I, why would the estate sue to get money for, not for the estate, but for, for, for relatives? It's the only remedy available. Well, I hope you have a sympathetic uh, administrator of the estate who, who likes the family because it's, it's no money in his pocket. Uh, that happens often, Your Honor, that the, the administrator uh, is in conflict with the heirs. What we're asking is that this court instruct the Supreme Court of Alabama that, the 19, that there cannot abolish a 1983 action because in doing so, it directly is inconsistent with the purpose of compensation and deterrence. And in doing so, we're asking this court to instruct the Supreme Court of Alabama that the 1983 cause of action is supplemental to the wrongful death statute and that the damages that, the, that are allowable under 1983 are those typical compensatory damages that are found in 48 or 49 other Where states. would the court be getting those rules from? They don't get them from Alabama because Alabama allows only a punitive damage recovery. They don't, and, and 1983 itself doesn't tell us. That's why we usually plug in the state remedy. So we don't, we don't have the federal remedy. We don't have the state remedy. So where, do, where does the court get the instruction? Where does this court get the instruction to give the Alabama Supreme Court? We ask that the court use the rationale and that is been, has been decided or, or uh, 
looked at in the Weeks case, the district court case in Alabama, if I may, I'll, I'll quote that section. It's page 1309 of that decision. It says, The compensatory damage award shall be measured by the losses incurred by the descendant survivors who are entitled to recover under Alabama statute of distribution as a result of the death. Such losses may include, but are not restricted to, expenses incurred in the treatment of or burial of the descendant, loss of income from the descendants, loss of companionship and consortium, pain and suffering of the survivors. This particular case, the Weeks case, was brought simply on the claim of the executor or the estate. Where did the district court get its law from? These type of damages are what most of the state statutes hold as compensatory damages in wrongful death. So in that, you say, is the source from which the district court obtained it? It just polled the various states and decided what was the common denominator, kind of? The briefs in the the district court case did have, I mean, there are several cases that they looked at. Does the district court say where it got its law from? The district court, I'm only familiar with this. The opinion does not. I'm familiar with it. Well, I'm not asking to examine the judge's mind. Does the opinion say where? The opinion does not. I am aware that the brief filed in this case showed typical compensatory damages that are found in other states. Alabama happens to be an unusual animal, to say the least, on wrongful death. May I ask this question as a matter of Alabama law? Supposing you had a single person who was 90 years old, a millionaire, no relatives at all. The person is seriously injured and runs up $500,000 in hospital expenses and then dies. Can the administrator of that person's estate recover a dime? On the wrongful death? No. Is there any provision in Alabama law for the state to recover anything for that person? No. And it gets even worse than that, Your Honor, if I could explain. The measure of damage is... I knew Alabama had its idiosyncrasies, but this is really surprising. The damages would go directly to the heirs. It would not even pass through the state. Then there would be nobody getting the... There would be somebody. And she left a will leaving everything to Alabama University or something like that, but Alabama University would get nothing. The will wouldn't apply. It would go directly to the heirs at law. There are no heirs in my case. Then there would be no recovery. I was going to explain even further what problem we have in trying to implement a 1983 remedy here. Because the wrongful death statute is purely punitive, it doesn't take anything in nature for compensatory damages. One example of two cases I have had. One was a 32-year-old Georgia Tech engineer with children making X dollars. He dies in an accident that there was a slight negligence. It was enough for a cause of action. That recovery was very nominal because the wrongfulness of the defendant's conduct was minute, maybe applicable. Another case in which I represented an 82-year-old Episcopal priest who was a ward of the church was involved in an accident, but in that case the defendant's conduct violated the law. They put an unreasonably dangerous load. And as a result, that case had tremendous damages. The point I'm trying to make is the recovery, as you have indicated, is unfair in one regard. It's also unfair as to the compensation aspect. It is the only state, and the reason I say that, Massachusetts used to have a similar rule, but I believe, I'm not sure, they have changed the rule. It's the only state that has this punitive damage statute. And it totally frustrates a 1983 cause of action that deals with compensation for the person injured 
as, as the statute says. Ventaz is going back to the Chief Justice's question about where the court in Weeks got its law. If I understand your answer, it got its law from sort of looking generally to the common law recovery rules beyond the state. That's correct. But it's not authorized to do that under 1988, is it, which refers to the common law of the, of the state in which the court having jurisdiction is held. So how, does, how did the Weeks Court make this leap to the rest of the Republic? I believe it does through Robertson, Your Honor, that it's the caveat of, of where it states that it cannot be cons- inconsistent with the policy. Well, I know that, that puts a block on what it can borrow from the, from the state in which it sits, but it doesn't function as an affirmative authorization uh, to, to travel to other states, does it? Well, is it federal common law? It would be an establishment of some sort of federal common law, similar. So it's to not borrowing at all. It's 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 a it's a fashioning of federal common law, pure and simple. Well, where they are absent of those statutes, that's what 88, I think, envisions. That's what Robertson, and I think this court has done so in Carlson uh, earlier. Then why did we need the 1988 provision in the first place? Well, you need the 1988 provision for the test. The 1988 provision gives you the test. You go, you, it says you consider first the state law and the state statutes. But where they're inconsistent, and in this particular case, not only inconsistent, but total devoid of the underlying purposes because of the two Alabama statutes that, that defeat them, you, you must supplement that with a federal remedy. And that is what Weeks did, and that is what we're asking this court to instruct the Supreme Court of Alabama to do. Do you wish to reserve the rest of your time, Mr. Pentad? I do. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Roberts, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court lacks jurisdiction to review the interlocutory decision of the Alabama Supreme Court. Section 1257 of the Judicial Code limits this Court's jurisdiction to review state court decisions to final judgments. The Alabama Supreme Court in this case did not issue a final judgment. It instead remanded the case back to the trial court for trial on the state law wrongful death claim, which remains pending. This is also not a case of mere technical non-finality, nor is it within any of the Cox exceptions. What about, like, is there is no doctrine here like waiver? Because this particular argument I don't think was raised in the petitioner's reply brief. You were not lawyer then, but the response the, the the, for cert, it didn't raise this argument. I, I think that's correct. Uh, the best that can be said yes, is if that... If it had, we might have caught it, but, but it didn't. And well, is the opposition, there any waiver principle or anything? And no, there is, there is not. The, the, the best that can be said is that the opposition that was filed did point out that the decision was interlocutory. It did state that the case was remanded. It did note that the state law claim remained pending, but I think it's fair to say that the finality issue was not not argued. It is, however, of course, a jurisdictional uh, objection, as this Court indicated in Flint versus Ohio and also in Odell versus Espinoza. If there's a lack of finality, it goes to the jurisdiction of the Court and, therefore, under this Court's Rule 15.2, cannot be waived. Can he argue that he comes within uh, your, the petitioner comes within the second exception because uh, the federal issue will necessarily survive on the grounds that the, the standard of care is different uh, and less 
under the federal cause of action that they want to apply? I don't think so, Your Honor. There's no — I mean, it seems to me that's the only way they could do it, to come within Section 2. Under, under the, the second exception, it necessarily must be the case that the federal cause of action would survive. And that's not the case here, because this pending state law claim involves the same parties and the same underlying allegations. Under these, this Court's decisions, that trial on decision on that claim could well be preclusive of any 1983 claim, and therefore it is not necessarily the case that it would survive. It may survive, again, depending on the results of the state law proceedings, which is why it's not within the third exception on which my brother relied. The fact that it may or may not survive, depending on the outcome of the pending proceedings, is why it is not within any of the Cox exceptions. It's also not a rare situation. I would suspect that in most cases in which you have 1983 claims, they're joined with state law claims, because conduct that violates Section 1983 typically would also violate some state law, and most attorneys would bring both the state law claim and the federal claim. So if the Court creates a new precedent here, a new exception to Cox, it would not be one of limited applicability, but would apply broadly to a wide range of 1983 cases. There was a case some years ago, Justice Powell's decision in Pennsylvania against Ritchie, which seemed to come pretty close to what is being sought here. My understanding of Pennsylvania against Ritchie, and it's a very complicated case, but my understanding of it was that on the facts in that case, the federal claim could not survive, regardless of the result on remand, which is why it was necessary to review it in the interlocutory posture. Regardless of whether the petitioner in that case won or lost, the federal claim would be gone. And that's not the case here, because the 1983 claim could well survive the state law proceedings. It may not, which is why it's not within the second exception, but it may, which is why it's not within the third. Sotomayor, how do you understand the complaint with regard to the 1983 claim? Is it a survival cause of action? That's how I read it, Your Honor, because the complaint seeks relief for the injuries that the decedent suffered, although it's brought under what's called the Wrongful Death Act in Alabama. I believe that's properly characterized as a survival action. If you're seeking relief for injuries to the decedent, it's survival. If you're seeking relief on your own behalf, it's a wrongful death action. This is a survival action, as I understand it. It was brought by the representative of the estate. And how do you understand Alabama law with regard to a survival action here under 1983? Well, it would be under the wrongful death action, although, again, I think it's properly classified as a survival claim. And the must be brought by the representative of the estate, and they're entitled to punitive damages to punish the wrongful death of the decedent. Alabama's view is that you cannot compensate the dead, and from the beginning, it's a very old statute, almost going back as far as Lord Campbell's Act. They've recognized that it's punitive in nature. It's brought to punish. Its original title was an act to prevent homicide, and they've adhered to that interpretation. But Federal law says you can't recover that against a municipality. That's right. This Court's decision in fact concerts means that you can't recover that. And that poses, if we reach the merits, that poses the issue. Is that Alabama rule inconsistent with Federal law? A real dilemma. 
Yeah, we, it is a, a dilemma, but we think the Alabama Supreme Court reached the correct result. Under Robertson against Wegman, you look to whether the policies underlying 1983, compensation. Mr. Roberts, may I just go back to the final judgment question for a minute to be sure I, I have it in mind? It is your view, it is, is it your, your view that the only possibility for a second shot at the federal claim will arise if the plaintiff prevails on the state law claim? Well, that's the most likely one. I suppose there could be some argument, even if they lose on the state law claim, that it shouldn't for some reason or another be given uh, collateral estoppel effect. I don't, I can't at this point. But doesn't it depend on what the finding is? I mean, if it, if it turns out that, that the, def- the defense, as I understand it, is we did nothing wrong. We came as swiftly as we could. She was already dead. Um, if those are the findings that are made, then there couldn't be any 1983 I think that's right. Claim. Yes, I think that's right. It would be precluded because the 1983 claim, as you just from a reading of the complaint, is based on the same underlying allegations. Right. But, then, but then your point, I want to be sure I have it fairly in mind. Your point is that even though the denial of the federal claim is the law of the case as far as Alabama courts are concerned, that, and there's virtually no, there's always a possibility, but there's, it's already been decided. There's, the case would still be alive, so the plaintiff could come back here and make the same argument he's making today. Oh, yes, yes. If, that's, if enough they, to, that's enough not to, not to come with any of the Cox exceptions. Yes. Uh, of course, uh, as my brother pointed out, they would have to go through the perhaps futile exercise of preserving the claim before the Alabama Supreme Court, but that's true in every case. Uh, of uh, non-finality. You can expect that the court that has already decided the federal issue will most likely adhere to its position. If that were enough to get it outside the finality rule, there would be no finality rule, because that's true in every case. Maybe Cox did cut way back on what the finality rule had been before, of course. It it recognized what what some have said, a more pragmatic approach. But uh, my point is that this is not within any of those exceptions, largely because the underlying claim that still remains alive, although a state law claim, is based on the same underlying allegations and it involves the same parties. It could well have an effect on whether the federal claim survives. Um, turning back again to the, the merits and Robertson against Wegman, the policies of 1983 are compensation and deterrence. There is no adverse impact on 1983's compensation policy in this case for the reason uh, recognized in Robertson, that when the uh, only claim for compensation is by the representative of the estate, uh, that compensation interest is not implicated. The reality is you cannot compensate the dead. Alabama law. Robertson was a peculiar case in that there were no surviving members of the family. It was... idiosyncratic in that respect, I thought, where here there would be no case in which there could be a recovery. In in Robertson, there were no uh, what were immediate relatives. Survivor was limited to parent, child, or siblings, and there were none of those. But uh, the language about the compensation policy not being implicated was not based on any finding that there were no heirs, uh, legatees, other uh, uh, ancestors or descendants, though not within the narrow category, it was simply based on the fact that the claim was brought by the representative of the estate. And therefore, as the complaint in this case looked to the injuries that the decedent suffered. Mr. Roberts, I don't have the opinion in Robertson in front of me, but I, I vaguely remember something in the opinion 
that pointed out that this was a peculiar case because there were no surviving members of the family. Justice Marshall's opinion did point out that this was peculiar in the sense that uh, the decedent, Mr. Shaw, was not survived by parent, child, or sibling. That was what Louisiana limited survivorship to. But it was not the case that there was any finding that he had no heirs at all, uh, that he didn't have a will. The case was brought, after all, by his executor, that there was nobody who stood to inherit if, in fact, he could get damages. But the Court said uh, the compensation interest is not implicated because the person on whose behalf you're suing as representative of the estate cannot be compensated. Mr. Roberts, can I ask you a little more basic question? Would you agree that the question whether uh, uh, punitive damages are available in the 1983 case is a federal question, and that's what uh, both Smith against Wade and and uh, fact concerts decide. So that if a state denied a punitive damage remedy, uh, this 1983 would trump the state denial. Well, it would depend under what guise. Certainly, if the if the state had a rule, there are no punitive damages right. in 1983, even against individuals. I would agree that would be inconsistent with federal law. But if it was a more narrowly applicable rule, for example, well, I'm just asking them in broadly. And if it were just a damage question in this case, the federal law would trump the state, a contrary state law. If it was, for example, years ago there used to be uh, in the wrongful death field there'd be a $10,000 limit on recovery. If, they, if the state had such a limit on recovery, do you think that would defeat? a larger recovery for in the 1983 case? No, and and I want to emphasize that that question, although it was adverted to earlier, is not before the Court today. The Alabama Supreme Court did not address The question whether it's before the Court is whether one views this as a damage issue or or a question of standing. Uh, Even if you view it as a damage issue, the validity of state caps on wrongful death recovery and whether they're overridden by 1983 is a, is a difficult issue. It's a different one than the one before the Court today. And it has to be informed by, for example, the fact that in 1871, many states had such caps. Correct. Congress, when it passed the one wrongful death provision it did pass in the Civil Rights Act in 1986, imposed a cap. Those are different questions whether the separate Alabama cap okay. applies. But if, if you would agree that on the issue of punitive damages, federal law would trump the state law, whichever way it went, here it's uh, kind of perverse, why isn't the same rule appropriate for compensatory damages? That if a state denies compensatory damages, the federal law generally allows it, why wouldn't the state, uh, federal law trump it there, I, just I, as it would in reverse? If a state granted and you couldn't say it. Anyway, go ahead. I think, I think it is, uh, the same rule is applicable as a general matter, but not with respect to the wrongful death or survival reco- uh, question, because 1983 doesn't address that more narrow category. What are the appropriate, what is the appropriate relief, if any, in a wrongful death or survival case? Yes, if a state law purported to uh, bar recovery of compensatory damages in a normal 1983 case, we would, uh, the court should find that inconsistent with 1983. But it's difficult to argue that a state limitation on recovery in a wrongful death action or, or survival action is inconsistent with 1983, when 1983 has no survival or wrongful death provision. No, but, uh, but Alabama has provided a remedy that's just some, that, that, but the damages it provided are, are unavailable. But the, if, if the fact concert had been decided the other way, the, the plaintiff would prevail. I don't think you can sever 
the damages from the remedy under the Alabama regime. Alabama has provided a wrongful death remedy for punitive damages. Well, it's provided a wrongful death remedy for administrators of the states uh, like this. But it has not, does not allow damages. That's the one thing it doesn't do. It doesn't allow the damages that would normally be recoverable in 1983. Well, it, lo- it allows the party to sue. I'm not sure that the Court can sort of pick and choose which aspects of the Alabama remedy it wants to incorporate, saying we're going to incorporate the fact that you allow a wrongful death action, but we're not going to take the only way you allow it, which is for punitive damages. Well, the line of reasoning Justice Stevens is exploring was the reasoning of the court in the district court in weeks, was it not? Uh, yes, except as I, as I read that uh, read that opinion, it, it says, well, there's a wrongful death action. Uh, and the problem, and so we'll and we'll keep that. Uh, the problem is damages. You can't have punitive damages, uh, but that's uh, a federal rule. Uh, you can't have compensatory damages. That's an Alabama rule, and we'll set that aside. That, that is the approach that, of the court. I, that was the reasoning. We, you think that's wrong? We, we do think that's wrong, and uh, we also think it's inapplicable even in this case, because the one thing the court did in Weeks is say, you get no recovery for injuries to the decedent, because we're going to give you a wrongful death. We're going to measure compensation based on your loss as a survivor. Then you don't get any recovery for losses to the decedent. Here, the only claims that are sought are what are technically survival claims for injuries to the decedent. So even under the approach in weeks, there'd be no recovery in this case. Mr. Roberts, you said a second ago that you can't, uh, you can't separate, you shouldn't separate damages from remedy. Do you mean you, can't, you shouldn't separate remedy from cause of action? So that what, in effect, you're arguing is there isn't a general cause of action here what there is, is a cause of action for certain punitive damages, period. And that's the only cause of action. And yes. You can't, you can't split the, 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 uh, the, the two in, in that respect. I th- Conceptually, I right. you've got to say the only thing Alabama allows here is, is a punitive remedy, in effect, period. That's right. And, of yeah. course, it's, it's not a, a, an approach that it's adopted in any way discriminatory to 1983 or this Court's decisions. It adopted this rule long before anyone thought municipalities could be liable for anything. Did you, did you come across any historical uh, — I'm, I'm just curious, historically, uh, probably in 1880 or sometime like that, there probably were quite a few states that said what Alabama says, basically, uh, a person who dies loses whatever tort actions that person may have had before the person died. That was probably the basic rule. Once you die, they're gone. You didn't bring them, it's too late. And there probably were a lot of states that hadn't passed survivorship actions, statutes, which is what we're talking about. Yes. Names get us mixed up. But it's yes. a survival statute for any tort or a certain tort claim. Yes. There probably were quite a few that hadn't. What, what were the people thinking when they passed 1983? I mean, they were worried about, say, like the local sheriff in the South might murder somebody or might beat him up. And, and what were they thinking? They were thinking that we give, we give a cause of action to people when they're beaten up, but we don't give a cause of action to people when they're murdered. That would be such an obvious question that maybe somebody thought about that and, 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 and talked about it. Was there anything historically that is not Not in the, the — there are references, of course, in the uh, legislative history of 1983 to murders, lynchings. And, of course, Congress did provide remedies for those in the Civil Rights Act. There's a specific remedy in Section 1986, 
which allows a cause of action for the widow or next of kin. Uh, there is a criminal provision now codified at Section 242, which could also be uh, invoked in cases of murder. And there was 1988, which says, look to state law to fill gaps in this remedial program. And to the extent states allowed survival or wrongful death actions, perhaps the uh, Congress thought that those would be invoked to recover in those situations. Most states had survival and wrongful death provisions when 1983 was enacted. I think. But I wonder, it says the common law, too, doesn't it? It says if the laws of, laws of the United States are deficient, you look to the common law as they modified. Meant, there was federal common law at that time. It would have been Smith v. Tyson. Well, but it's the common law as modified by the statutes of the forum state. And my understanding is that if it's... There would be no modification in a state that hadn't passed a survival action. That's right. So, it, so it wouldn't be an issue of the common law as modified. It would be a question of the common law. In which time they might have thought federal common law. Or is that, that well, whether it was federal common, whether it was federal common law or state common law, it was unambiguous that in the absence of legislative change, there was no recovery in the case of wrongful well, death. Well, Swift against Tyson didn't cover statutes, did it? Uh, I mean, you know, if, if you had to have a, a statute for wrongful death or survival recovery, that wasn't something that the federal courts just undertook to provide for themselves. No, not at all. And this Court recognized in the Brain case, six years after 1983 was passed, that the, at the common law, and it didn't differentiate between state or federal, but at the common law, they thought it was uh, beyond question that there was no wrongful death or survival action. And, of course, they did not assume that there could be a separate <clears throat> concept, did they, of, of federal common law at that point? I mean, there was just a generalized concept of common law. I think uh, — I, I asked your brother a question premised on exactly the opposite uh, assumption, but I think I was wrong in doing that. I think at the time the decisions recognized they didn't break it down as federal common law and state common law, but there were some issues that would be governed by the common law, more local issues Mr. Robinson, than the laws of the It was state. neither state nor federal. Common law was this mystical no. concept we inherited from England. It was English common law is what and, that term would normally refer to. And under, under 1988, it — was applicable and less modified by the statute. Now, here, of course, uh, Mr. Roberts, that if there was no survival statute or wrongful death statute in state, a particular state in 1871, they passed it in 1890, that would nevertheless control in cases after 1890. Yes, yeah. uh, because uh, it incorporates doesn't modify time to time at at the time. Um, now. The other prong under Robertson against Wegman, they ask, what is the effect on deterrence? And here again, there is no adverse effect on 1983's deterrence policy by application of the Alabama law. To find an adverse effect, the court has to hypothesize a city employee who is familiar with the intricacies of the wrongful death law and 1983 law and who, solely to avoid subjecting his employer to liability under 1983 for compensatory damages, would kill rather than injure the victim of his constitutional violation. Mr. Robinson, though, isn't it, isn't it and this is a federal claim, and it picks up on state law, auxiliary state law, that you could have a result on this, under this federal claim for relief of no recovery at all in Alabama and a whopping recovery in the neighboring state all under this federal cause of action. It seems to me that the state law that says no recovery would be 
inconsistent, well, the federal court would have to supplement it from some other source. The fact that you get a different result from state to state, as this Court recognized in Robertson, is, of course, a necessary consequence of the terms of 1988. It says that you're, if you're borrowing state law, you're necessarily contemplating that there may be a different result in one state and in another state. Uh, and the Court reiterated that point in Carlson against Green in distinguishing the remedy it was creating there. If you can have minor variations, who are the survivors might be different in one state than another. Some might have grandmothers and some might not. But this kind of basic uh, variation, the question is, is it incompatible with the idea of a recovery to have this set up which says, you know, you, get, you end up getting nothing. Well, I think it, it begs the question to say that 1983 assumes there's going to be recovery in cases of survival and wrongful death. Uh, Is there any other state in, in the Union that has this situation where the only recovery under state law is punitive damages? Uh, Massachusetts used to have that rule. Uh, it, it changed it. At this point, Alabama is the only state that uh, remedies wrongful death through punitive damages alone. That doesn't make it an illegitimate policy. It's based on the... For, for an Alabama claim, Alabama could do whatever it wants, have a cap on punitives and no cap uh, on, on damages in, if one survives, which I understand is the law. But the only way to have a survival or wrongful death cause of action under 1983 is by incorporating the state law, because when 1983 was passed, there was no survival or wrongful death at common law. The Congress knew that if it wanted to create an exception to that, it had to be done legislatively, as it had been in Lord Campbell's Act, as that Congress did in Section 1986. The opinion, uh, Justice Ginsburg, you announced this morning indicated, and I'm going just on the basis of the announcement, that when Congress in the same statute provides a remedy in one section and not in the other, you don't assume that it exists. Ah, but we've already crossed that bridge, haven't we, in this series of laws? How about 1982 and 1983 with respect to damages? 1982, if I remember correctly, just speaks in terms of uh, declaratory relief. And yet you can get damages for a violation in 1982, can't you? I believe so, yes. Right next to 1983, which says damages. But here you're talking about an exception to the prevailing common law rule. And when you have a narrow exception in one section, I think the only logical inference is that Congress did not intend it in the other section. Uh, there is no doubt Congress knew what the prevailing law was, no recovery for survival or wrongful death. The most that can be said is that they would give you that right if you had one under state law. 1988 would provide it. Here Alabama does provide such a right. And it doesn't leave them with no remedy. Under the Alabama rule, you still have a remedy under 1983 applying the Alabama rule against individuals. And this Court has recognized repeatedly in Robertson, in Carlson, and in fact concerts that the most effective deterrent is an action against the individuals. In fact, the and situation... And that would be if we take, if take Alabama law wholesale, you could, you, if you could identify the individual firefighters then you would be subject to the $100,000 cap. Is that right? Oh, yes. And again, I don't think that issue is before the court uh, because, the only, because that's not part of the wrongful death statute. But on your reasoning, I take it there would be no incompatibility there. I think not, largely because at the time 1983 was passed, 
Many states, I'm not sure if it was quite a majority or not, but many had such caps. Congress put a cap in in the only wrongful death provision it provided in 1986. The situation in Alabama under the Wrongful Death Act is quite similar to the situation this Court has formulated under Bivens. We know from FDIC against Meyer that you have a Bivens action against federal officials, in the, in, uh, the individuals, but no uh, Bivens action against the agency. Here, applying the Alabama Wrongful Death Act, you have a 1983 action in the case of wrongful death in Alabama against individuals for punitive damages, but you do not have one against the municipality. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. Mr. Pantazis, you have one minute remaining. Thank you. Your Honor, you had indicated that Robertson had an exception. Robertson does have an exception on page 1997. It says we intimate no view, moreover, about whether abatement based on state law could be allowed in a situation in which the deprivation of the federal right causes the death, which is exactly what we have here. One final statement. If 1988 did not intend for this Court to review the state court's common law and statutes to determine whether or not they were inconsistent, they would have left that sentence out, but they didn't. The sentence, the statement that this Court and all federal courts are to view the, the state common law and state statutory laws for their inconsistency to the policy of the federal 1983. And that, I think, answers Your Honor's question of why and how this Court has to review the state laws. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Pantazis. The case is submitted. We'll hear argument.